Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you today? Happy Labor Weekend. It's this fun weekend, and, and specifically because college football starts, and I, uh, I lived in a state for five years that had the Detroit Lions as their pro team, so you get very into college football when you have the Lions, and, and you guys don't care because you have the, the Broncos, and they're awesome, and uh, so good for you. Uh, and I managed to book theater tickets for my kids to go see a movie at 10 o'clock yesterday morning, right when the first game um, started, and I was, I was pretty salty about it. I sat there grumpily, uh, sneakily listening to the game on my AirPods while everyone else was happily watching the movie, and I don't regret it at all. Uh, not even sorry. But we're going to jump into a text as part of our series, Crisis, uh, and then we're going to come to this place, to, to the table, uh, to communion, to Eucharist, to Mass, known by lots of different names. It is this place of presence. It is this place where we believe that Jesus is present in a particular way, and we come and we remember him, we engage with what he did for us. So if you have a Bible and you want to open it, this is Luke chapter 15. I'm going to start at verse 11. It's a well-known story, possibly the best short story ever told. I did say that about the Good Samaritan just the other week, uh, but I'm also going to say it about this one. Um, Verse 11 starts this way. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. While after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Jesus, as we open this parable and we investigate its meaning, would you speak to us? Would you speak deep into the longing in our hearts as we wrestle with questions of identity of who we are? Would you remind us who we are? God, for those of us that need comfort, would you comfort us? For those of us that need affliction, would you afflict us? Would you stir up whatever you need to stir up? And would you shape us to be more like you 
Amen. So we've been in this series for a couple of weeks. This is the last week, just a short series. As part of this vision casting few months that we're doing all the way up until Advent, really, we're going to start talking about who we are as a community and what we feel God is calling us to do in Littleton and the areas around it. But, but we wanted to kind of wrestle a little bit with the problem. And so, so we called this series Crisis. Some of it is, is surrounding, like, what is going on out there? Maybe some of you have a sense that all is not well in the world. And I'd call it almost like the refrigerator moment. So, some of you, like, you, you open the refrigerator at home and you're like, I don't know what it is, but there's something in there that's just, it's just not right. And, and if you're a male under 25, you don't know what this means. Um, because you just, like, you just, you, best before dates are just, they're just... The guidelines to use, you just eat it regardless. And, and, and I have a little bit of that in me still, even though I'm over 25. I, I tested some milk the other day by sniffing it, and I said, huh, I didn't throw up. The milk's good to go. We'll be okay. We'll just, we'll move on. But, but there's something about that moment of like, what, what's in there that's bad? And we wrestle with it just a little bit. We figure it out. And that's kind of what we're doing in this series. We're asking questions about, many of us feel a certain angst about the way the world is operating or the way the world is working, what is at the core of it? And, and so we've used this text in Genesis chapter 4. This is Cain, the first murderer, complaining about the punishment for murdering his brother. My punishment is more than I can bear, he said. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Somewhere in that statement, there's some deep existential questions around identity, belonging, and purpose. I will be hidden from your presence, is identity. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, is belonging, and whoever finds me will kill me, is this, this question of what's, my, what's the point of living? Life is going to be short, brief, and pretty miserable. Identity, belonging, and purpose could be phrased as, who am I? Where do I fit? And does my life matter? Now, I just want to pause for a second because the, the implication of what I'm saying could be those are just problems that we wrestle with or, or people wrestle with outside of church. I actually think one of the big struggles of church is this. I think people outside of church communities look at local churches, look at followers of Jesus and say, show me that you live a life different than I live. I think there's a group of people crying out to be shown that there is a better way to live. I'm just not sure they always see it in church. Jesus said this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I wonder how many people outside of church communities look at the lives of followers of Jesus and say, huh, if that's life to the full, I'm not sure that I really want what you have. There seems just as many problems, just as much brokenness, just as much struggle in the church as there is outside of it. Now, of course, we're all different here. I just want to say that, obviously, we're, we're all perfect. But there, there is, right, there's that tension of like, do we live that? Do we experience that? Is that who we are? So we looked at purpose, we looked at belonging, and we said, as far as purpose goes, if you want to change the world, tell them a better story. Show that the story of Jesus matters and gives you purpose, gives me purpose in how I live. And and when we looked at belonging, we said, if, if you want to change the world, show them a different type of community, a community that runs by different standards with a different heartbeat. And today we get to look at this question of identity, which is really, to me, like undergirds a load of the struggles, a load of the tensions that we see in the world around us. I feel somewhere like wrestling with identity and who I am is like the, the base level 
of all of these. It's the thing that everything else stands on. Now, just you know, this is the best graphic that I can do. This is not my skill set. So usually we have a connections, communications person that does all this kind of stuff. And this was last minute, so I did it, and that's as good as it gets. So you're lucky that the font isn't papyrus or something like that. It just it's just what I am able to do. I think this is where identity fits. It's the thing that holds the others in place. But I think how we live looks more like this. I think we struggle and wrestle with identity more than anything. I don't think often we know who we are, or in terms of following Jesus, I don't think we know whose we are, to whom we belong, how the Jesus story fits in us. People have been wrestling with identity for a long, long time, whether it's people like Sigmund Freud, or whether it's people like Carl Jung, or whether it's people like the great Eminem, Marshall Mathers, who said this, I, and I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, then why would I say I am? In the paper, the news every day I am, radio won't even play my jam. He's wrestling with, with identity and, and how who I am merges and gets into conflict with who you think I am, who I'm trying to be to perhaps impress you, who I think, who God thinks I am, all of these different questions that we sort of circle around that we struggle with. This question of who I am is old. On the temple in, of the temple of Apollo in Delphi, there were three idioms or maxims of the day. One was know thyself. The other one was nothing in excess. And the third one was certainty breeds insanity. Three things that maybe would speak a little bit into how we live, but certainly know thyself for them was this key thing that there was this process of, of learning to figure out who you were, of knowing, perhaps knowing your measure is another way they would have termed it. Now, this is where it gets a little bit scary. In a recent poll, a group of Americans, people very similar to us in this room, were asked, if you got into a fight with a bear, how certain are you that you would win? And 6% of people asked said they were certain that they could beat a grizzly bear in a fight barehanded. 6%. Now, now I know what you're saying. That's 94% that had some uncertainty, but the 6% is still just a little bit scary. There is a lack of self-knowledge that goes into that statement. I mean, this, it's a bear. It's like we know what a bear does, and, and yet 6% felt, no, I could wrestle a bear, and everything, everything would be fine. We see that struggle with lots of things. We, we often look at people who do things for a living, who are professionals, and think that what they do is easier than it actually is. Those of you that play golf know this experience. You hit one good shot out of 20, and then you have this moment of, huh, I, I could do this for a living. I am not far away from the standard required for, for millions of dollars on the PGA Tour. There's an illusion there. And... Conversely, people who are brilliant at stuff often underestimate how, how difficult it is or how difficult what they do is. The thing that you do if you are an expert in it took a lot of work, and sometimes we think, oh, no, it was actually pretty easy. There's some natural gifting there or whatever. We wrestle with just knowing ourselves or knowing our measure. Perhaps because that's so complicated, I wonder if we spend more time wrestling with this other question. Who do others think that I am? If the Greeks put on their temple thousands of years ago, know thyself, I wonder if we might put on a modern temple this phrase, 
curate thyself. I wonder if we would say curate thyself. Make yourself acceptable. Work hard to present something good to the world around you. In essence, pretend. Do what you need to do. Uh, The writer Erica Bailey said this, we often act as virtual creators of our online selves by staging or editing content we present to others. And, And for those of you that spend any time online, you see this happen with all of these clips of expectations versus reality. You go to a place like Blue Lagoon and you expect it to look like the left. Um, That's how I picture myself in Blue Lagoon. That guy, look at him, he looks wonderful. And yet this is what Blue Lagoon probably looks like, full of tourists splashing around. You picture yourself going to the pyramids of Giza and then you realize the downside is that they're in Giza. (laughs) Giza's a town like lots of other towns And, and then you think about the Great Wall of China and you see that it's actually just full of people. You have these pictures of of expectations and then the reality hits. And then we do that with our own presentations, our own pictures too. I found this picture of the three, four of us in, five of us, I can't count, in New York a couple of years ago. We lived in upstate New York at the time and we went down for the Christmas festivities and, and all of us are smiling and yet I remember what the day was like. It was terrible and I'm actually convinced it was so cold. I actually think those smiles on our faces were the smiles that were on our faces when we parked the car, when we got there and they froze instantly. And so they're just still there, even though deep inside, like this was just the worst day and the worst idea. And yet we have this beautiful photo to show for it. That there's a way of presenting things to the world, uh, social media platforms and the way we use them aren't designed for showing our authentic selves at all, says Bob Dersha. And then I love this phraseology. So you play this game, but nobody seems to know exactly what the game is or what the rules are. We just know we need to be better, cooler, more together, happier, and on top of ourselves. There is a tension between who I am and wrestling with that and knowing what my identity is and then what all of you think my identity is, what all of you think that I am. And then throw into the mix, I have these questions about who God thinks that I am too. Does he own me? Does he value me? Somewhere we perhaps are doing something wrong. I I read recently 37% of teens were struggling with their identity and 95% of teens reported that they had felt inferior at some point in America. 30% of the population suffer from anxiety and 20% from depression in China anxiety is at 5% and depression at 2%. Now, there's all sorts of questions, all sorts of stuff behind all of those statistics. It's not supposed to make you feel guilty if you struggle with one of those things. It's maybe supposed to make us ask questions, why? What are we doing society-wise? Is it healthy? Last week, we talked about the experience of seeing a lion in a zoo. We look at a lion and we watch this creature exist in an environment that isn't its natural environment. But someone's very thoughtfully thought through like its landscape, so it designs it vaguely around how a lion would live. And a nutritionist thinks through its food, so it tries to plan food that a lion would eat. But but each of us, if we're honest, we get there and we watch. And especially if it says bred in captivity, we can't shake the feeling that it's not a real lion. It's not living a a real lion life. 
And if it seems true for us, I, I wonder if the parallel isn't, the parallel isn't that, that, that if this lion were to, to grab a camera phone and start taking pictures of its compound at such an angle that it looks like it has big, wide open spaces to live in, taking pictures of its, its food given to it by the zookeeper and pretending that it's its latest kill and taking photos of the other lions pretending this is the pride that it lives with, that kind of fraud or fakery is maybe somewhat of what we do. We, we pretend, maybe because we have to, maybe simply because we don't know who we are or whose we are, and we're deeply fearful of what others think we might be. Outside of all of that, there's these things that might give us identity, and the list could be way longer. It could be brands or bands or clothes or celebrities or sports we follow or sports we play or where we are from, where we love to go those we admire, our work, our sexuality. There are so many ways that we can capture identity and say that's who we are as, as a world, as a species. I just think we are people who are desperate for some sense of identity, some sense of who I am. Where does this come from? What's the source for that? And we looked at that Cain story but I actually think there's another story further back that, that to me speaks more to that situation. This is the first conversation God and man have after the famous incident with the piece of fruit. God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? And there's a couple of things that just occur to me there. There are times where even though it might have not been true physically, there's been times in my experience where I have felt that sense of I feel naked, felt like I was exposed to the world around me. And some of them, when I tap back into my childhood, are, are just almost silly little things. I remember the first time I realized my parents talked about me in front of other adults as though I wasn't there. And, and we'd just been on a trip, and I remember them going through the number of times that I'd said, are we there yet? And feeling for some reason this deep embarrassment and hiding behind my mom's legs because I didn't like the feeling of being talked about. I remember the, the time me and my brother were paddling in a creek and he got his pants soaking wet and they ended up sailing down the stream and, and I remember seeing my parents dress him in my pants and they made me walk back to the car for a mile and a half in just my underwear and walking past people and feeling just that sense of, of vulnerability. I remember the first time I did something wrong at school. We were in, in a field at the school and we kicked a hole in the fence that backed onto someone's yard. And I remember having no clue that what I'd done was wrong. And then the principal standing up in assembly and saying, somebody did this and they need to confess. They need to own up. And I remember that burning sensation that came with that moment, that deep, intense burning and fear that I was going to be exposed to the world. That, that somewhere is what is going on in this phrase, naked. But I'm intrigued by that second question too. Because God asks them, and who told you that you were naked? And assuming the question's not rhetorical, there were only a couple of options. It wasn't God. I guess it could have been Eve that told him, but somewhere there's this character, the serpent, that enters into the story that we're later told identifies with the devil, and, and maybe he's the one that said that. And I think about all the things that I hear about myself, about my own identity, all the words that I speak and believe to be true about me that I, I don't want to share with anyone and I recognize that, that I'm just like Adam. I'm someone who feels at times naked, exposed, that feels lied to, that is uncertain of who I am and 
and why I matter and all of those different questions that we talked about. Somewhere these identity questions, they're not new at all, they're old. And sometimes that voice, those different sort of moments where we fear or hear the worst about ourselves, they, they tap into all of those weak spots, our mistakes, our shame, our low points, our fears, and our guilt. And you could probably list a whole bunch of other stuff. But maybe just the easiest way to identify that is, is to simply ask, what is it that I fear others might know to be true about me? There is a wrestling with identity for all of us. Alan Noble said this, if I truly am my own, which is perhaps a statement of modern society, I am my own, I belong to myself. If I am my own and I belong to myself, then I must define who I am. My parents can name me and the government can issue me a social security number, but only I can decide my identity. Only I can decide my identity. Somewhere, I would suggest the story that we read does that for us. It offers us an identity to embrace. It takes that decision from us and says, no, there is an identity for you that is true potentially of every single one of us, if we'll only embrace it. Is this story of, of the prodigal son? This is Rembrandt's interpretation of this story. Fascinatingly, this picture in its original form was broader because Rembrandt actually painted himself into it. He knew implicitly that this story was his story somewhere. The, the writer, Klein Snodgrass, says this, if scripture seeks to give us an identity, if the Bible and the writers want to give us a sense of who we are, and, and he would suggest they definitely do, and I would agree with him, if scripture seeks to give us an identity, this parable, he says, is a prime identity-shaping text. Why? What is it about this parable that hits so close to home, that has the potential to, to give us an identity in the face of all of those things that we might believe about ourselves, all of those things that we might struggle with. So, so before we get there, this story has what's called a chiastic structure, so you'll see it. There's, the story starts at home. The prodigal is at home. Everything is well. The younger son is at home. And then he goes traveling, or in this case, he leaves. His journey is away. And then there's the turning point in this place called a far country, the place that we might describe as, as our lo lowest or worst point. And then the story reverses on itself and goes back in the other direction. There's traveling again, only this time he's returning. And then finally, he, he returns at home, to home again. At each point, this younger son will find an opportunity for identity. There's something that he can embrace as his own, something that happens that he could say, this, this is who I am. And I would suggest for many of us, the same points in the journey are true as well. So we start here. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Firstly, Israel, this nation that Jesus spoke to, they always associated themselves with the younger son. In the Old Testament, all of the stories, the youngest son was the hero, the youngest son was the good one. So for them, they were like, well, we're, we're the youngest son, he's going to be good, right? Although in this story, he's not particularly good. The youngest son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. This is a weird question to ask. There's something about this question that, that goes against everything this society believed. To go to your father and say, give me a share of your estate was essentially to say, Father, it's really inconvenient to me that you're still alive. 
I wish that you were dead because then I would be able to get everything that I wanted. This is a request for possessions over relationship. It's, Father, I want you out the way. And so there's, there's almost an insult tied to what this son asks for. And yet, incredibly, this father agrees. If most people of the first century were writing this text, the next part would say, so the father had him tied up and thrown out of the family and nobody ever saw him again or something like that. The story at that point is over and yet because of Jesus telling the story, this story continues. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together. All he had set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. We get to the heart of his purpose. Why is he asking for the money? Why does he want the resources? He lives in an agrarian community. Generally, landowners were respected, were valued, but there wasn't much to do in an agrarian world. So he, he wants to go off to a city, he wants to go somewhere where he can spend that money in what the Bible calls wild living. And we get to imagine just exactly what that looks like. He disappears. His identity, the embraces at this point, is, is the classic seeker of pleasure. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've done that. Maybe that that's certainly been my journey at different points in my life. I'm just going to do what I want and I'm not super worried about the consequences. This is his identity, first identity stop, I guess, first identity moment. He's simply a seeker of pleasure. The actor, comedian Russell Brand said this, pleasure for me was a way of connecting with an external world that wasn't painful while escaping from an internal world that was painful. When he looks back at his life as a recovering addict, he says, simply, when I went looking for pleasure, I was simply looking for identity. I was looking for a way of dealing with all of the stuff that circled around me. I was doing identity seeking just in this really chaotic way. But the story goes bad. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. The implication of the story is that he was always eventually going to spend all his money. It doesn't last forever. The resources dry up and now he's left in this place where nobody knows him. Nobody has any responsibility for him. Nobody cares for him. He, he's in what's called a far country and, and now there's a famine. Now, now we, I think, as 21st century people, unless we've lived in particular places, we don't really understand famine. Think about what we're reading in the news at the moment. We have the situation in Jackson, and suddenly out of nowhere, a whole bunch of people don't have water or access to water. So what do we do in those moments? We make a call, and a truck arrives that has tons of water on it in bottles, and people drink that water. That is a new phenomenon. These communities that Jesus is speaking to, they don't have places to call and say, hey, deliver us some food. They don't have places to go to just to grab water. If there is no water, if there is no food, it is a crisis. And, and that's when a community genuinely has to rely on itself. And, and yet, what happens if you're an outsider in that community? What happens if you don't belong? And that's where this son finds himself. Right now, he is just a slave in a far country, we're told. He goes and hires himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, which is, is fascinating because the implication of this story all along is he leaves a Jewish community and he goes off to find a different type of community. And, and if one thing was known about Jews, it was they hated pigs. So it's almost like this, this person in the far country says, I'm going to give this guy a job that he would only do if he was desperate. 
I'm betting if I tell him, go feed the pigs, he's going to find another option. There's no way he's going to take me up on this. And yet at this point, the hero of the story is so desperate, he, he does. And we're told heart-wrenchingly, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. The food fed to pigs was impossible for humans to digest, and yet he's looking at this food saying, if only... If only my body was wired to digest that, that would be better than what I'm experiencing now. So after being a seeker of pleasure, after being a slave in a far country, now simply at this point, he's, he's just a survivor against all odds. And this is about as bad as the story gets, perhaps. And, and perhaps you see ways and patterns that your life taps into some of those identity issues. There's, there's been maybe the exploration of just, I'm just a pleasure seeker. Maybe you had moments, the low points of, I feel like I'm paying the price for all of the decisions I made. I feel now I'm just a guilty person with no options in front of me. This is where this character ends up. And then, as Jesus so often does, there's the moment that the whole of the parable hinges on. It's this moment where he told we're told he comes to his senses. In some versions, it will just simply say he wised up. He woke up. He figured it out. It all clicked for him. And that's the moment where the story starts turning back on itself and, and coming back in the other directions. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And there's something fascinating embedded in this passage because on one hand, he does this thing that the, the New Testament calls at different points repentance. He turns around. But there's a whole bunch of questions about, well, is he sorry does he really want to fix things, or, or has he just decided he's going to figure out a way to fix it himself? The language right at the end there, make me like one of your hired servants, is fascinating. He doesn't go back to his father and say, let me be your son again. Let's restore our relationship. Let's make it up. Welcome me back into your family. He doesn't ask for that. He does ask for something, though. He says, make me a hired servant. Give me your permission to work in the area for pay. Somewhere, you could read this at some point as saying, I'm hoping that I can come back into the area, back into the general community, but I don't need us to be father and son again. I don't need you to restore the relationship. Just let me live in a house by myself. Let me work away as a servant. I'll, I'll pay it back eventually. I'll keep working. I'll keep going. There's lots of sort of history of Jesus telling stories like that. There's these moments where people will promise to repay outlandish debts. And, and somewhere you might read this text as saying, here he simply wants to be a self-made man. I can figure this out. If only you'll let me. And while the other areas of identity may or may not speak to you or to I, to me, that definitely hits home. His request to his father is, I'm going to come basically back to the fringe of the village and, and I want you to give me permission to work, permission to do it myself, but, but I, I don't actually need a relationship. I don't actually need you to, to restore me to sonship. It's almost there, but it's not quite there. It, it doesn't embrace grace. It doesn't embrace, it's, it's simply, I'm going to make this up to you. 
And so that's the attitude he goes back with. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And we'll come back to the why of that in just a second, because the father has done something that makes any promise of let me be a hired hand just turn to dust in his mouth. How can he say that after what this father has done? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He no longer goes into his spiel about let me be a hired hand. He no longer makes any promises. He simply at this point relies on what his father will do for him. He's no longer trying to make it on his own. He's no longer trying to do it himself. He is simply at this point where he is, he is an unworthy recipient of grace. Everything is dependent on the Father. And yet, even that point, which might sound like an ending point, isn't where this Father in the story allows it to end, because even that ultimately is not his identity. This, uh, this, this child, this prodigal, he is not, his identity is not being in a seeker of pleasure. His identity is not that he is a slave in the far country. His identity is not, I am a survivor. His identity is not, he is a self-made man. His identity is not, I am an unworthy recipient of grace, even as good as that last one sounds. There is only one identity that this father will say he's, is his, and I would suggest only one identity that the same father would say is your identity and my identity. The teller of the story offers only one identity for him. The only identity at any point that is truly his is he is a beloved child. Is he is a beloved child. The father's invitation makes that possible. Bring the best robe and put it on him. That robe would be the robe that his father wore for special occasions. It comes out of the closet specially for this occasion. Put a ring on him. A ring was a sign of family authority. Sandals on his feet. Sons wear sandals. Slaves go barefooted. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. That's fascinating. It's like this moment of, you know the money we saved for that trip to Europe one day or that special occasion? We're just going to empty the bank account and we're going to spend that on this huge big party. This is like this moment of just pure extravagance of pouring everything out, leaving nothing back. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they begin to celebrate. The teller of the story offers only one identity for him. This identity is scandalously true at all points of the narrative. When he is at home, selfish, and self-willed as he is, he is a beloved child. In the far country, he is a beloved child. In his journeys, he is a beloved child. That is his only true identity. He may be broken the relationship. He needs that relationship restored. Yes, all of that is true, but somewhere this is his one true identity. He is a beloved child. And in all of our wanderings and all of our strugglings, I would suggest that is our one true identity it's the one identity that Jesus seems to embrace for himself in his baptism. We're told the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The writer Henry Nouwen said, you were beloved before you were born. That's the truth of your identity. 
It's fascinating that it took Henry Nouwen years to capture hold of this after writing at Harvard and at Yale and all of the different places he studied, all of the different places he taught. He ended up running away with the circus and, and watching a trapeze act recognized that there were all of these different roles. There was the person that threw the person that did all of the somersaults and all of those different things and then there was the person that caught them. And he realized finally that the, the person being thrown couldn't help with that process of being caught. They simply had to allow themselves to be caught. And he realized for himself, I desperately needed God to catch me, desperately needed to hear from him. I am your you are my beloved child. In you, am I, I am well pleased. I would suggest somewhere for us, with all of our wrestling with our identity, the one thing that we need to hear consistently from our Father is that. You are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. In your moments where there is a voice that stirs up past shame, past struggle, past torment, past abuse, past failure, the thing that you and I need to hear is you are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. That is your identity. That is my identity. I am a beloved child. And fascinatingly, this identity comes at great cost to his father. When we go back to that, that moment of greeting, we, we read, so he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. There is this moment of just, of just joy in the father and, and welcoming his son home. And so he does something that no man over the age of 40 would ever do in traditional first century village life. He pulls his robes up to his knees like a teenager, and he runs through the streets as people watch and stare. Somewhere in this story, there's hidden a, a, a Jewish tradition that, that when someone squandered their money amongst Gentiles, there was only one welcome back to the village. It was one of shame, one of abuse, one of mockery, where the people, especially the children of the village, would come, and they would dance around, and they would sing songs about that person. And then finally, there would be a pot broken in front of them, and they would be cast out of family life for good. This is what that son is coming back to. And the only thing that stops it happening is a father who will run through the streets to welcome his child home. All of that mockery, all of that embarrassment, all of that moment of feeling naked, all of that moment of shame, the father takes upon himself as he runs through the streets. One of the questions about this parable has been, where is Jesus in this parable? Where is sacrifice? Where is the cross? Where is the atonement? Where is a savior? And the answer is, it's right it's right there. It's right there in this moment when a father takes upon himself all of the shame and all of the punishment due to a son and says, no, I'm, I'm taking that on me. And then, of course, there's the older brother who wrestles with his own identity and resents his brother's reception as a beloved child. This Older brother appears only at the other end of the story and he's supposed to make us wary of our response to people who experience this incredible grace of God. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father was, has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. There was this moment of celebration where the village comes together to, to celebrate what the father has done. 
And then there is the older brother who stays on the outside who won't participate. And to that son, the father goes out too. In a traditional setting, what should happen is this. The, the father should say to his hired man, tie him up, lock him in a room. I will deal with him later. To, to refuse to participate in a family event, to refuse to go in when your father had called a party was just as much of a betrayal as anything that the younger son did. And yet the father responds with grace to this son too for a second time in this short story this father will take the humiliation that is due to the older son and he'll take it on himself too but he answered his father look all these years i've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders yet you never gave me even a young goat so i could celebrate with my friends this son has his own identity struggles this son believes that he is a servant a slave and yet he too is a son. His true identity is simply still in, you are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. He doesn't know who he is either. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. He can't even bring himself to acknowledge that this is his brother. So deep is his resentment at this point. So, so high is his anger raised he won't even acknowledge his brother. This story somewhere reflects our reluctance to receive our identity as beloved children and exposes our resentment to those that do. Have you ever wrestled with your own guilt and your own struggles? And then you've watched someone who seems to have done things that you might say were far worse and you've watched them live in joy and freedom and there's been part of you it's like, ah, that just doesn't, seem fair. And the truth of the message of Jesus is it's not always fair. It's not fair. The incredible scandal of the gospel is this. Sometimes, sometimes forgiveness is easier for the murderer than the victim's family. Sometimes it's easier for the person that did the abusing than received the abuse. Sometimes that person knows deeply, deep down, how much they need this story, how much they deeply need that forgiveness. And for some of us, we're not quite aware that we do. For some of us, we think we're okay. The scandal of the gospel is that, in some ways, it's easier received by the worst of us than by the best of us. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he is found. And for a second time, that language of resurrection comes up. In terms of receiving this, I love what Louis Smead says. What I felt most was a glob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sins I was guilty of. What I needed more than pardon was a sense that God owned me, held me, affirmed me, and would never let me go, even if he was not too much impressed with what he had on his hands. Henry, now and again, you were beloved before you were born. That's the truth of your identity. That's the truth of your identity. The story ends poised between what has been, what is, and what will be. This son has betrayed his father very deeply, and yet he is welcomed back into the family. 
He's given a ring, he's given a robe, but there's no mention of a bath, a shave, any of the things that you might think would make him fit for society. All of those things will follow. Simply right now is a moment of celebration of a son who was dead and is alive again. The beautiful tension of this message of Jesus is that it is, it is a free welcome to all, open to any who will receive this identity of dearly beloved children, made possible simply because of the thing that we're about to talk about at this table. The incredible good news is that this message takes you exactly as you are, and yet this God of the message loves you far too much to leave you where you are. It's a message of total acceptance and incredible transformation. Aaron and the team are going to lead us in a song as we process some of these elements. Take a moment to just ask who you are. What is your identity? There are so many things I can own, so many failures from my past that I could drag up. Sometimes I find my identity in what I do, of who I'm married to, of the children that I raise, the roles that I play. Sometimes I find my identity in all of the the, the, the dark and dirty things about me hidden beneath the surface. Simply what I need and long for is that my father would say to me, you are my dearly beloved child. In you I am well pleased. Wherever your story has been, whatever the far country has looked like for you, whatever words have been spoken over you, whatever baggage you carry, whatever moments that have left you felt naked and exposed. To all of those, this Father says, you are my beloved child. In you I am well pleased. This is the gospel. as we sing would you speak to the deep needs of our heart would you remind us that we are loved fearfully and wonderfully so thank you Jesus Amen. if God is working in your life through this ministry join us in reaching others by partnering with us you can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.